Hello, Eugenie here. Today, we speak with Peter Berryman, a man who is so highly qualified that he literally has more letters behind his name than in it. <laughs> he has completed a Bachelor of Science, Naturopathic Diploma, a Diploma of Astropsychology, a Bachelor of Medical Science, an Advanced Diploma in Homeopathy, a Postgrad Diploma in Health Science, Graduate Certificate in Education, and a Master of Science in Complementary Medicine. He has also taught at heaps of different colleges all across Australia and New Zealand, and currently as of mid-October 2021, he is the president of the Australian Traditional Medicine Society, which has a very long history here in Australia, and he's hoping to be re-elected in their upcoming elections. It's literally in the next few days. Voting finishes on the 27th of October 2021. So I was personally very grateful that I got to pick his brain a bit towards the end of this episode with some homeopathic questions that I have sometimes wondered about myself, and I feel like I learned so much during this episode. So just a note for the general public, or if you're new to homeopathy, it gets a little bit hairy towards the end. So if you have trouble keeping up with what Peter is saying, don't worry, the last bit is really aimed more at practitioners. So let's jump right into the interview. Welcome to the Homeopathy Hangout Podcast, where we discuss all things homeopathy from around the world. And now, your host, Eugenie Kruger. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Homeopathy Hangout. Today, we are hanging out with Peter Berryman, who has too many hats on and too many titles after his name for me to mention. So I will be doing a separate recording to actually add all of those because he literally has more letters behind his name than in his name. So Peter Berryman, welcome. <laughs> Nice to be here, Eugenie. Thanks for inviting me. Now, you are the current president of the Australian Traditional Medicines Association in Australia with thousands of members and an incredible history. Can you tell us where your love for natural medicine first started? I'm a third generation natural medicine practitioner. So it's been in my family, although uh, arguably they have um, other disguises doing other things. Um, uh, Natural medicine has been in my family for, for a long time. It came about for me as a, an epiphany when I was the, the ripe old age of 14 years. And uh, someone I cared a lot about got uh, seriously ill, uh, one of my colleagues at school. And she was taken to all the best practitioners, conventional doctors of the era in the time, and no one could help her. And I was distressed to think that someone I cared about was not able to be helped. And uh, I made a personal life decision that I wanted to be that person who could help people who no one else could, the, the difficult clients. So I've had a quest to be the best physician I could possibly be. And um, then two years later, I, I finished high school, went to university, and my journey has been devoted to this ever since. So for the last... So 46 years, I've done nothing else but um, aspire to be the best physician I can be. So everything I've done, however variant it might look, are all intended to this one aim, to be the best physician I could possibly be. And uh, I believe I've pretty much gotten there. I, I've, got, I've learned a lot along the way. Um, I've done a lot of training, a lot of courses, graduates from all sorts of universities and colleges and so forth, life experiences, travels, books, and so forth, webinars, seminars. Um, and uh, that's why also I love training and teaching, passing on what I've learned to um, the, those who will replace me uh, in the future. Amazing. 
I wonder if you can maybe tell us a little bit more about what is exactly it is that you've studied, because as I was going through your CV and as we were chatting before the podcast, I was trying to comprehend how somebody can have done so much in one lifetime. Uh, do you even remember all the places that you studied at? Well, I'm looking at my CV. It's <laughs> out on anything. But maybe if I just said I have my sun in Gemini, my moon, in Sagittarius, my rising sign is Aquarius. So I am extraordinarily curious. I want to know why is it so? And I've devoted that curiosity to the study of, of health and disease and humans and, and other species to be able to help people get better. And uh, I've been practicing that for well over 30 years now as a graduate, um, specializing in homeopathy. Uh, I, I'm, I, I should say I'm fortunate to have been exposed to lots of different natural medicine modalities, uh, and I considered being a jack of all trades, but I decided I wanted to master one, and I chose the one that I felt was the pick of the bunch, the best one, in my opinion, to, to devote myself to, and that's why I'm a homeopath. Mm -hmm. So what specifically is it that gets you excited about homeopathy? Well, it has the combination of recognizing and utilizing conventional Western science. So I've had a strong background in um, science, biology, medical science, graduating from uh, Sydney University with a Bachelor of Medical Science, Auckland University with a postgraduate diploma in health science, um, Otago University with a Bachelor of Science majoring in microbiology and all of these things have been used to assist me in my gainful employment. I've been a senior lecturer in the bioscience department at a, a significant college here in Australia and in New Zealand as well. So utilizing that as a base point to then see, okay, well, yes, I understand um, this sort of mechanistic reductionistic program of why it might be so. Um, is there more to it than that? And And that's where I... Interested in, in psychology, in, in soul work, in counseling, um, psychotherapy. And the best model I found to help me with that has been astrology. So since I was 20, um, I've done formal studies in astrology and I use that as a yardstick or a map to give me insights to ask the appropriate open questions for clients to help me understand their case. So they, they might need a prompt on something that is embarrassing or shameful, hidden or forgotten. And I say, well, tell me about yada, yada, yada. And they go, oh, I wasn't going to tell you about that. <laughs> Shoot it up and away we go. Because, if, you know, what's the cliche here? You are as well as your secrets. Mm. And you may not want to tell your secrets because they are often things that you are embarrassed or ashamed about. And um, in a case taking, we want to have an environment where a client feels comfortable enough to tell you what's important. And that's why I don't use intake forms. I just say, okay, so um, how can I help you today? Mm -hmm. Please talk about anything. If it's got to do with you, it's useful, it's relevant. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't force them to tell me about their menstrual cycle or their bowel defecation or their, if they want to tell me about that, that's fine. But if they want to tell me about their dreams or their um, fantasies or their whatever. Mm -hmm. let's, let's talk about that because if they are paying my fee and they want to talk about this 
I'm happy to listen because we, we do the best we can with what we've got and we can never know everything. But if we give them the opportunity to speak and tell their truth, what they want to talk about, even if it's sensitive, even if I don't hear till three consultations. I had a client just yesterday. She told me something I wish I knew 30 years ago when I started treating her. Oh my gosh. She didn't want to talk about having had uh, a sexually transmitted infection three times, mm-hmm. which would have indicated a significant nosode like metarhinum, mm-hmm. which would have addressed what we call the obstacles to cure. So I've been bundling along, bundling along, trying to make inroads in this case, quite frustrated. And now I know after 30 years, oh, so that's the obstacle to cure. That's why some of my prescriptions haven't been as effective as I would have liked them to have been. And we get on. So, I mean, heck, clients, to be frank, sometimes lie to you. Mm -hmm. And you need to have enough clues to read clients. And you find astrology is a good in for that. And astrology is a good way to tell own body language. And, and these days we've got visuals. Once upon a time, I used to only work on the telephone with distant clients, let alone old school face-to-face. And I used to be able to try and make something out of intonation, how they said that word. Mm. I go, wow, okay, maybe there's something there. Mm. But now I can hear their intonation and I can see, okay, from waist up, I can see something and it gives mm. me a bit of a clue. Um, which is why I love doing house calls, house visits, because then I walk into their house and I see they've got a pet python. Mm. <laughs> I wouldn't have known that if they'd come to my rooms. Yeah, and they wouldn't necessarily have thought to tell you about it, but actually that can be a really good clue for you as to what remedy they need. And I just have to say, I, if you walked in on your first consult and never met you before and you told me the dirtiest, darkest secret of your life, the only reaction I would have is excitement that it's going to be easier for me to help you. We are the least judgmental people on the planet as homeopaths because we hear so many different things. We're so aware that we are just here to help. We don't care if you have wh- whatever you've done in your life. We just want to help you. That's the only reason why you know we need to know this information. So I, it's sad that it took her 30 years, but it's wonderful that she finally could tell you so that you can actually help her because that's all we're here to do. Sure. Well, it's also why, um, particularly amongst British homeopaths, they have this thing called supervision, Mm. which practically means you, the practitioner, take care of yourself by having somewhere for you to offload all those sad, horrible stories that you get told without you falling apart, listening to so much tragedy. Absolutely. Once a month, go and get yourself Mm -hmm. someone else. Maybe another homeopath could be a counsellor or a psychologist. Uh, I mean, people who do counselling, have this part of their um, self-help, their maintenance, their professional conduct is to get supervision. Like stay well and don't crack up and don't burn out and don't crash and burn from all the tragedy they hear about. Mm-hmm. Well, natural medicine in Australia is very, very lucky that you haven't kept all this incredible knowledge that you have all to yourself because you have gone on to teach lots of homeopathy and to use your knowledge to help others. So can you tell us a little bit about all the places that you've taught and how you came to be the president of the uh, Australian Traditional Medicine Society? Thank you. Yes. Um, After beginning my academic career at 16, Otago University, graduated Went on to do further study in Sydney, Australia. Graduated with my naturopathic diploma 
1986, started practicing shortly after as a homeopath. I was fortunate that I had a bit of a reputation amongst my colleagues. I was known as a crazy mad homeopath. So a position became available at a teaching college in Sydney to teach homeopathy and supervise student clinic. So um, in fact, even before I graduated, I was a clinic supervisor at Richard wow. College um, because, gosh, I was a bit of a hotshot. And, you know, I, I believe in what I do so strongly. I'm very passionate about that we've got, arguably in my humble opinion, the most potent, effective therapeutic intervention available on the planet right now that is regularly available. I completely agree. And so, hallelujah. Uh, <laughs> 1990, I started my role as a teacher, trainer, mm-hmm. and facilitator, clinic supervisor. Um, I had multiple institutions in Sydney that I would teach at um, ACNT, UTS, Nature Care College, Sydney College. Um, and I would go over to New Zealand and teach for the Biopolitical College of Homeopathy as well at their Auckland campus. I started out doing postgraduate programs, but then I got invited to be their academic manager and was based in, in Taronga for, for two years, teaching at all their campuses. Um, but then I got uh, headhunted to go back to Australia and got an academic position at the Dev College of Natural Health in their bioscience department. And I would be loaned to the homeopathic department as well to teach homeopathy and supervise student clinic on an as-needed basis. And then that's gone on with, as I say, with uh, Australis College and recently Switch On Health, an online college based out of Brisbane where I live now. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Then how did you get on board with the Australian Traditional Medicine Society? Uh, okay, so while I was an employee at uh, Endeavour College, a ATMS representative resigned and moved to another college, so they needed a representative from the college to go on the board of ATMS. So I volunteered, and that was in 2007. And so I've been on the board ever since. Um, then I was elected by the membership to be a depend, uh, what they call an ordinary director rather than an independent director since 2013. And since 2017, uh, the, the board have elected me to be their president for the last five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got an election coming up, I hear? Yes. So uh, every three years, the tenure expires of the current directors. So my three-year tenure expires at the end of this calendar year. So I've been nominated to uh, take another three-year tenure. If uh, the membership um, deem it so, it's a democratic process. The elections are open right now through to the 27th of October. Um, Vote for Pedro, and there are <laughs> six nominees, four positions vacant. I believe I've done a good job. I'm happy to continue to do so, both in governance, strategic planning, and risk management that I do as a director. Oh. Uh, our committees, that's the workhorse of ATMS, is um, there are seven committees devoted to a number of topics. Reporting back to the board, I have a lot of passion and devotion and good ideas about what, what we can do as a team to improve the natural medicine landscape in Australia for all modalities, mm-hmm. including homeopathy. Mm-hmm. So, and ATMS has got thousands of members and it's been going for several decades. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yes. the society itself? Dorothy Hall, who was considered the grand old dean of Australian herbal medicine, started 
ATMS in 1984. And um, she set up standards of education. So we have industry standards, which are arguably independent of anything else anyone else does in the government or in other RTOs. And we've just grown and blossomed. We've got about uh, 8,500 members across Australia in about 20 different modalities. So it keeps me universal because as crazy as I am about homeopathy, I'm very sympathetic that clients may find their niche with massage, reflexology, iridology, acupuncture, osteopathy, chiropractic, heavens knows what might be the right thing for you. And mm. therefore, I'm extremely tolerant of difference. So, um, absolutely. We always need to have that choice for sure. Yeah, because, you know, what happens to the failures? If, if the homeopath fails, where do we send them to? Mm-hmm. I send them to an acupuncturist or an osteopath or someone else. So they may be able to make a breakthrough if I fail. Exactly. Or, yeah. Can the general public sign up as a general member with ATMS as well, or is it just for professionals? We do have a criteria called associate member, mm-hmm. which is not a practicing member. So they can be a member of the public who just wants to support. They have a uh, annual membership fee, so they don't get to vote in the elections, but they certainly can support us. We have a, an online Friends of ATMS as well, which is another network of folk who support us. They don't pay to do that, so there's two ways for the general public to become involved. We have a, an annual reach out to the public called Natural Medicine Week, usually at the end of May every year, where we get our members to host events in their private practice or these days, we've been doing things online, so online events um, and getting a lot of publicity using our own communication channels through social media to let folk know about the brilliant issues that are available in natural medicine, including homeopathy, mm-hmm. uh, all of them. So it might be a tea tasting, it might be seated massage, complimentary. Mm-hmm. We had an expo in the Houses of Parliament in June. We petitioned the parliamentarians to have what's called a parliamentary friends of complementary medicine and natural therapies. Mm -hmm. So we went down and we, we booked part of um, the rooms in the Senate and we had an open day and we had parliamentarians, we had their staffers, we had the janitor coming in. Wow. um, We, we did seated massage. We had videos. We did some, um, some testing, some functional testing. That's nutritionists know about that. And I was in charge of the tea table <laughs> and bespoke herbal tea preparations, a bit of this, a bit of that to help you with something simple. And uh, wow. what was the rece- like, what was the reception like? Like how did, how they did loved it? it? Really? It was all free. We, our sponsors helped cover the costs of, you know, the mm. ones we were giving away and the teas we were giving away. But um, our, our lobbying endeavor here on behalf of ATMS and our membership is to improve the people who work at Parliament House, there are over 7,000 people per day work at Parliament House on an average day to let them know what really is natural medicine because they may have weird and crazy ideas about what it is and isn't. So if we can work from the janitor all the way up to the minister about what it is that we do and a little teaser of this and that, then when it comes to voting on critical issues like the entry report or finance issues or GST exemptions and mm-hmm sorts of things that we we care about we can feel as though we've made a little bit of difference in their awareness of what it mm. is 
rather than something skeptical or perverse even. Mm. That's such a brilliant idea. Whoever came up with that idea deserves a gold medal. <laughs> that was very smart. It was one of the directors on the HMS board. Mm. Brilliant. Just committee and she's up for re-election. Christine Pope. Excellent. It's uh, wonderful just getting the person behind the therapy or like you said, perverse even. I always laugh, but in Laurel Chiton's documentary, Just One Drop, she asked people on the street, what do they think homeopathy is? And one guy says, oh, homeopathy is when you touch yourself in a weird way. People do think all sorts of weird things about natural medicine. So you guys actually going there and um, showing them what it is and getting them a taste of it. I think that's brilliant. Sure. It's, uh, well, it's, like, it's an extension of what we do with Natural Medicine Week. Mm-hmm. We do that in collaboration with other associations and other associations are welcome to take this opportunity of going to Parliament House and utilising this facility that we've got going. And, you know, we've got sympathisers who are senators, um, members of Parliament, uh, ombudsmen, staffers, all the way down to people who sweep the floor at night. So Wonderful. Want to make a difference. Yeah. And uh, actually speaking of just one drop, I hope most of our regular listeners of this podcast have watched the documentary by now. Certainly we've talked about the NHMRC report a few times. Jerry Dendrinos in our second episode kind of went into the whole NHMRC report and what that's meant for homeopathy in Australia. And that is still going on at the moment. And I know just the other day he had another uh, meeting with the ombudsman, you know, just trying to get to the center of all of this. But when all of that happened, that Energy Massey report, suddenly you could not study homeopathy in Australia anymore. And I think there's been about three or four years where there was nowhere in Australia where you could study homeopathy. And just recently, there is a um, school called Switched On Health, which have received their registration with the ATMS. And I'm so excited that we can now study homeopathy in Australia again. So that's pretty amazing. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. the once upon a time was a health training package for the four ingested modalities, including advanced diploma of homeopathy. That was cancelled in 2015. It was taught out by the end of 2018. Um, and that leaves a significant hole in a potential pathway for potential students to be practitioners that they can't do an advanced diploma. Mm. So um, RTOs had to drop it. Because they have this government mandate, and the and the, the government has dropped the health training package, we can't teach the government program. So, Switch on Health, Nature College have you might want to call them gone rogue. They've got mm-hmm. a independent, government free program, as in not tied to government shoestrings and purse strings. So they can develop their own programs. They don't require government funding because the students have to pay. So there's gouging of weird things that happen about courses with students who are doing things for the wrong reasons and getting the money so that they're, you know, mm-hmm. I wonder, that's yucky. So um, Nature College has got three or four programs now that are independent. Mm-hmm. Switch on Health has got four programs, including an advanced diploma in homeopathic practice. Mm-hmm that have been accredited with the ATMS standard of education necessary for those adjusted modalities, including the ATMS minimum education standard for homeopathy, which we've had since 1984. I mean, it's been modified and improved, but we have an industry standard that is free of government input. It's what we think a homeopath should have. Which is way more important anyway, just by, by the people, you know. And switch on health and nature college have delivered on that, and we welcome other RTOs to go the same way. 
mm-hmm. because then they can untie themselves from the government. Now, we love the government, but sometimes they don't always act in our best interests. Mm. Um, we'd love Greg Hunt, the current Minister of Health, to give us rebates back for private health insurance mm. and so on and so forth. So there's lots of things we would love them to do, but they can't. No. So do we sit and wait and twiddle our thumbs and do we knock on the door and make appointments? Yes, we try, 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 try. But if they don't want to do it, they don't do it. Mm. So we go independent. We encourage colleges like Switch on Health to college and any others who want to, um, to write a program, submit it to ATMS, we endorse it, then you're an accredited ATMS education provider. There's an angle. You're not going to get students doing dodgy govy money because they're going to have to be honest students who are paying for it properly. Mm. They get payment plans and help, but it's not government money. It's genuine students in a genuine course that is being genuinely accredited by ATMS, and, and mm-hmm. we're not a kid on the block. We've been around since 1984. So mm-hmm. I think we're credible. We're Australia's largest natural medicine multimodality association. Amazing. I was so excited. The reason I found out, I told you, was that a client came to see me for her follow-up. Um, her son has autism, and um, I gave him some remedies, and she came back, and he was doing so much better. And she said, you have inspired me so much, and the results that I've seen in my son is so astounding that I have now decided to become a homeopath. And I found this great program from Switched On Health in Australia. And I was like, wait, what? I thought that we couldn't study in Australia. So when she told me that and I found out about the college, I was so excited. So I really applaud them and I applaud you guys for giving them the registration because we need more homeopaths desperately. My clinic is so busy. I now have two homeopaths on board to help me. They are getting booked out so quickly. And there's not that many homeopaths under 60 in Australia worldwide actually, but I was talking about Australia. So um, we do need that new cohort of people coming in and learning about homeopathy to just really keep it alive and keep it going. And with the current pandemic, I think homeopathy is an excellent career choice because we can do it all online and we can post your remedies out to you. So that's, I think it's a wonderful career choice. Excellent. That's why I endorse uh, Alistair Gray and Denise Streger's program out of New York stroke mm-hmm. world. So mm-hmm. Um, with online training these days, you don't have to live in a state capital city for a bricks and mortar college to see nine to five Monday to Friday. You can do things, time zones permitting, any time of the day or night uh, with recordings, anytime, anywhere that suits you as a grey nomad or as an intellectual you know, traveler. Mm-hmm. Of course, while you're on the beach. Absolutely. So um, it, it's unstoppable now. So. Mm-hmm. I'm glad these colleges are doing that and encourage others to do that too. And ATMS has recognized as leaders of the industry that online training is the way to go. And we have appreciated the value of face-to-face training as well as online training. And so we've made significant landmarks as to, well, how much is okay and how much is not okay. And we're the leader of the pack. So Mm -hmm. we say more is okay than most other folk. Mm-hmm. So we're quite generous, quite liberal in that regard. So Wonderful. it's why folk like Martin at Switch On Health and the folk at Tenecure want to have their programs accredited. We can't register, we accredit programs mm-hmm. so that they can be confident that their graduates will meet our standards and become mm-hmm. members of ATMS so that we can continue the chaperone process of encouraging graduates to excellence and be answerable to a code of conduct and um, keep themselves from getting rusty with their continuing professional education program 
make sure they are safe with the public liability insurance, mm-hmm. the state, all those sorts of things, so that we can foster the next generation. Absolutely. I wonder, Peter, you, would you mind sharing some cases from your clinic with us? I'll tell you the, the gist of a simple case. A female client came to see me on her left breast. She'd had a um, mole removed. And she didn't tell me how many times the mole had been removed. And I thought it might have been once or twice. So I gave her the well-indicated remedy. And the direction of cure was induced 16 times this flared up and down because she had had that mole removed 16 times. Wow. So when I saw the direction of cure reduce, you know the fourth component of the direction of cure is passed on as all problems come back in reverse chronological order. To see 16 flare-ups and settle and flare-up and settle and flare-up and settle, all as a consequence of this one remedy, I thought, oh my God, mm-hmm. that's how it has to be because if she's had 16 interferences and it requires 16 revisits to undo all that um, interference and, and non-curative action. I mean, surgeons have their place and I appreciate what they do, but it obviously had cured this issue of this mole on her breast. And not only did the mole on the breast change, but she went through a profound metamorphosis and she remembered all sorts of unpleasant things about how her mother used to pimp her as a child. Well, and so she had this, you know, healing process with her mother, da, 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 and an incredible change. So it wasn't just about her breast; it was about the whole woman and where she came from. I give you one more quick case, please. Um, female presented at age twenty-seven, but age four she had measles, and the measles um, with its photophobia had affected her eye, and she had one eye that turned, and. Um, the solution from the surgeons was a surgical correction to straighten her eyes up and with spectacles. She had three surgical procedures on both eyes before I met her at 27. A simple prescription, never well since um, measles. You probably know the remedy. Probably Balladonna. Oh, Pulsatilla. They <laughs> gave her Pulsatilla. And what happened to her eyes? Three times they would flare up, settle down, flare up, Settle down, flare up. The first time it happened, she was quite alarmed. But then I said, you've had this interference with your eyes. And she went to the, the Sydney Eye Hospital and they said, there's nothing going on there. I can't see anything. There's nothing acute. You haven't had a trawler. Mm-hmm. So, so we deduced it was um, a chronic regression. Then when it happened the second time and then the third time, we weren't so panicked because we said, oh, there we are. It's a curative response. You are resolving the interference of the surgical procedure on your eyes from the measles. And not only did her eyes correct, and she never needed spectacles again, but the woman went through a metamorphosis. Her gut health improved. Her skin improved. Wow. She became more outgoing than, than, than introverted. Um, the next family event was a, was a, a wedding. And no one recognized it. <laughs> oh, who's that? Oh, she's living down. She's got radiant skin. She's not got glasses on. She's out. Wow. Who would believe that was mm, someone some time ago? So that's what healing is about. Mm-hmm. That's what I feel happens when you take a philosopher's stone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did you want to did you want to expand on that a bit more? The philosopher's stone. Well, I feel that what we do when we do homeopathy well is like what is rumoured to happen when someone participates in 
the philosopher's stone that is the therapeutic healing philosopher's stone. Now, there's a number of philosopher's stones. Some turn base metals into gold. I'm not talking about that. I mean, that's a metaphor as well. But the metaphor of taking someone who is ill, someone who is leaden, and turning them into gold, someone who is healthy and radiant and blossoming and, and well, that's what I think we do practicing medicine. Now, it happens in other areas of life, whether you're an engineer or an artist or a sportsman. They all have their similar aspirations, but we do it as health practitioners. We take someone who is ill and we assist them on the journey to getting better, to being mm-hmm. that it's possible, given their age, socioeconomic position, gender, and so forth, to be as well as can be. Mm-hmm. And that's what a homeopath does, and that's what the healing philosopher's stone does. So I've done some training in alchemy. Uh, in a sense, well, in case you didn't know, the curricula in alchemy includes astrology and um, a, a Jewish tradition called the Kabbalah um, and sacred geometry and all sorts of things. And we focus on the, the plant kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, and we make things in the laboratory and um, it's amazing. And it's one of my quests to give back something to homeopathy is I'd like to see if we can make better, stronger, more potent, more effective medicines, particularly our plant medicines which have been handicapped because the way that um, the existing homeopathic pharmacopoeia states a mother teacher is made is that something called the mark, which is the twiggy bits, are thrown out because they're not soluble in alcohol or water and the mark is removed. It's not contributing to mother teacher and this is called the body. Of the plants, the soul and the spirit of the plant are included, but it's lost its body. And that's, I feel, depreciated the potential of plant medicines being more powerful if their body was included. And a spagyric preparation is a mother teacher with the body of the plant included to give it more oomph than it had before, before we potentize it. So herbalists and homeopaths and anyone who uses plants as medicines, we could have better medicines if we included the mark. Now, what I'm talking about is what's a process called calcination. We burn the twiggy bits back to an ash. We separate the, the, the dangerous things, the carport mortem, the deadhead, the dangerous bits, and we have the water-soluble salts, uh, usually potassium and um, sodium salts, and we put them back in with the liquid alcohol and water-soluble parts, the, the oils and the alcohols, which are reflective of the soul and the spirit. So the body is added back, and then we use that as a mother tincture. If we potentized it into mm-hmm. centesimal, decimal, Q-scale potencies, we would have more potent medicines than we already have. And already, these are pretty fantastic. But mm-hmm. for our difficult clients, and my stock client is a difficult, complex, chronic client. I mean, that's the niche of homeopaths. Mm-hmm. We get all the difficult ones. Mm-hmm. And to move those clients forward, we need excellence. So we do our best in terms of philosophy and theory and case-taking and case analysis, da 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 But sometimes what lets us down is the pedigree of the medicine. It wasn't made to the very best possible pharmacopoeia standards. So it's one of my aspirations is to improve the pharmacopoeia standard to make better medicines before they potentize so we have more power evo- evo- available to us 
particularly for our difficult clients. So, so I can't remember the, I guess they do. About 20 years ago, I had a yoga teacher said she wanted to come in for a general checkup. That was the last easy client I had. <laughs> I don't get easy clients. <laughs> I get difficult, very difficult, mm -hmm. you know, from mm -hmm. preconception, fertility, and fertility issues through mm -hmm. pregnancy, delivery. My, my sister's a midwife, so I've had something to do with home birthing and birthing. Wow. Pediatrics through teens, all the difficult puberty through fertility. Um, so you obviously well, like a challenge. <laughs> yes, and as mm. well. Yeah. Yes, and one of my other pet topics, along with, uh, as I say, this idea of renovating the homeopathic farm computer, also has to do with how we get the second half of prescription correct. Now, there's been so much focus in homeopathy about the right remedy, the Samilman, yes, but we have to get the optimal potency as well. And that's another one of my favorite pit topics, mm -hmm. you know, new about that. And um, I'm an advocate now about Fibonacci series, mm -hmm. hub of either centesimal potencies or Q potencies, and heck, why not even decimal potencies? Mm -hmm. And making those into, the home accord is where you put the, the multiple potency potency oh. into one bottle of the one remedy. Mm -hmm. Then the client will self-select what they need and not select what they don't need. Mm. And they tend to have, therefore, less aggravations. And then when they need to change, whatever their new need is, is in there already as well. So you don't need to change potencies because the different potencies are in there and they just work their way around whatever they need. Mm. Um, Dr. Joe will be very happy to hear you say that. Going at the fit. And, and also my myth busting this idea that posology has been hung up and obstructed on the idea between these alleged high and low potencies and mm. i've written about how there is no such thing mm. there's a paradox that is simplified into a half truth about high and low potencies but they don't tell you the other half of the truth that paradoxically says well actually that's not quite correct mm. So this is the, the sine wave idea rather than a linear up or a linear down. We'll give a warning to the general public. I have a feeling we're going to get into the nitty gritty of things right now, but I would love us to go here because uh, many of my mums are becoming such great home prescribers. So I reckon let's rev it up a gear. Let's change things up because well, this podcast has only ever been done for people of the general public, but we're going to be revving up things a little bit and chat to us about potency purely for my own um, uh, selfish reasons, <laughs> because that's something I often struggle with. You know, finding the remedy out of 8,000 odd remedies is, is hard. But next thing is potency. And that's a whole other story. So Peter, you've got the floor. Go for it. All right. Well, <laughs> homeopaths have to do two things right. Select the right remedy and give it an optimum potency. And if we've done both of those right, how we know we've done it right is the direction of cure is induced. So there are so many guidelines around how to find a similar the right remedy. I'm not going to go into that, but what I can offer you is that I have suggested a solution to the other half of the prescription, the posology, the potency, the dosing issue. That once you found the similar, then you put into one bottle in the centesimal scale each of the Fibonacci potency, starting with 3C, just to avoid some of the gross toxicologic problems of 2C, 1C, and mother teach. So there's 3C, 5C, and up to 243C go into one bottle. And then the client takes their 
dose from that. And for an average chronic client, it might be five drops in the mouth plus five times between doses the mm. day, every day, till the next review, which might be in, in a week or a month. I mean, a bottle on that sort of regime, a 25 mil drop of bottle will last about four weeks. Mm. So at the latest, speak again in four weeks, if not sooner, and see how they go. And what you would expect had you got the right remedy with this and it's the other half of the posology dose issue, what people call a minimum dose, the client should be making some excellent progress in the court's direction cure. And if they want to express it as a percentage and say, I've had 5, 10, 20, 50% progress since starting, then you've got a, a quick feedback. Well, okay, so I got the remedy, right? The potency was in there. They got the optimum dose they needed. They made this progress and keep on sailing on until they reach either the point of cure and they're so sorted, discharged, or if they're not and they're uh, on some plateau below cure, um, then we need to revise, perhaps review, maybe change the remedy and continue on again. So uh, what I'm suggesting is this is a solution that is not addressed in the literature and hardly anyone's got their mind around it. Joe's got an idea. Um, uh, an author in 2012 called um, Michelle Shine had a crack at it, but she got hung up. She didn't get over this issue of high and low, so she... <laughs> clung on to this idea that there are high and low potencies. There's not. And attempted to address this issue, which is not possible. So if we could get over this myth of high and low and address that any potency could be an optimum potency, if that's the client's optimum potency individualized for their needs, mm -hmm. then we don't have to get hung up on, you know, 3C is a low potency and 10M is a high potency. Because mm -hmm. when we appreciate the same way, those different potencies may be at the same point on the same wave delivering the same therapeutic intervention, um, and we've given them the wrong name. Mm -hmm. And we see th if we see things from left to right rather than up and down, high and low. Mm -hmm. Because, look, here's, here's the basic idea. Hahnemann said, I want medicines to be rapid and gentle. And if we do that, then we get uh, a curative response, a permanent curative response. So how do we deliver rapid? Sakasha or tritribition, right? And so we have in our potentizing process a step-by-step -step process, and, and that's why it's called intercurrent succussion, mm -hmm. because we do a, a phase of um, diluting, and we dilute by a ratio of either 1 in 10, 1 in 100, or 1 in 50,000. And then we stop, and then we do some shaking, and we can shake two times, 10 times, 100 times. Again, the ratio different differs according to the scale, and we keep on going. Students, practitioners query, well, what potency should I use? Well, here's my answer. Uh, a Fibonacci home accord of all of those Fibonacci potencies, say the simple scale or the Q scale or heck, why not even the decimal X scale mm -hmm. into one bottle and deliver. So mm -hmm. then there's, a, there's only one thing to get right, and that's the right remedy, which is hard enough. But I'm making it relatively easy then if you get the right remedy. And I've solved the posology problem. Mm -hmm. Everything should come true from that. I like what you're saying. So as you were saying this, I thought oh, I'm going to throw another sticky question your way. Is I think it was Laurel Chiton, that uh, filmmaker of Just One Drop in our podcast, was saying, you know, she just wishes homeopaths would prescribe a bit more consistently. And I said, oh, well, I actually like that we don't because we're all so different. But I feel like we have an explosion in homeopathy of different prescribing methods and 
different ways of analyzing the case? Do you give just one remedy or do you give 10 different remedies? Do you give an organ support or do you like how, what, what do you think is the answer to that? Should we all prescribe exactly the same way or is it good that we're all different? And what does that mean for the public who want to go see a homeopath? Maybe have previously seen one who just gave them one remedy. Now they go to somebody else and they walk away with 10. What do you have to say about that? This, this is potentially highly confusing because, <laughs> uh, there's an author who wrote a book, um, on 17 different ways of being a homeopath, all these different methodologies. And arguably they all have a time and a place. There's a. Was that Ian Watson? Methodologies of homeopathy. Yeah. I still saw my textbooks. Yeah. So, uh, Reading that, you get an idea, gosh, there are so many ways that you can call yourself a homeopath and do something very different from someone else who calls himself a homeopath. And again, because I'm into inclusivism rather than the opposite, I'd say, well, look, if you're getting a curative response, if you're inducing the direction of cure, who am I to say you're wrong? And who am I to say that I'm right and you're wrong? Because uh, my, my path has been evolutionary and things I do now I never dreamt of. I taught myself new tricks that no one taught me, and I would have never dreamed of them. So uh, these things I pass on to my students mm-hmm. uh, and in my writings because I want to leave a legacy to help those behind that. So I told you some of these ideas about having a home accord, having multiple potencies in one bottle. Um, I've tipped on this idea of having a spagyric tincture of a plant as your starting product before you potentize it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I, this idea of solving the myth of high and low potencies. There's a paradox of a sine wave that uh, as you go from left to right across a scale, it simultaneously gets stronger and weaker and stronger and weaker and stronger and weaker as you go across because we are simultaneously doing dilution and succussion. So we get weaker by dilution and stronger by succussion. Weaker by dilution, stronger by succussion. You get the idea so it goes, so it doesn't, it's not linear of one or the other. Mm-hmm. It goes up and down like a sine wave with peaks and troughs. Mm-hmm. I've got evidence to suggest that that's the case from people like quoted from Bolvinist and from Jones and Jacobs and so on, other authors who show this non-linearity of different potencies having different biological effects. Mm-hmm. So if I can solve all these sorts of things, then why can't I entertain novel ideas from the latest? I mean, heck, let's admit it. There are fashions in homeopathy. Mm-hmm. And you know, the epicenter of international homeopathy rotates. And there was a time it was in the United States and then it moved to the United Kingdom and then it's moved to India, Holland and yeah. India and mm. heck, why can't it be in Australia? <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> I'm ready for it. <laughs> um, so that leading on then, what would you say to a member of the general public who is thinking of seeing a homeopath and might be wondering how that person might prescribe or uh, if they walk away confused. So I'll give you an example. I have a client over here. I I use several remedies in my prescriptions, organ supports and endocrine sarcos and balnozos and homeopathic detox therapy and constitutional remedies. She then sent her member of her family who lives in Ireland to see a homeopath and that person walked away with one remedy. So she was very confused. <laughs> so what would you say to a member of the general public who's thinking of seeing a homeopath? Well, their choice in a homeopath is probably the most important decision they will make because if they choose to work with you, Eugenie, or me, Peter, they have to shop around and say, well, 
you know, I, I phoned them up or I saw them on a webinar or I, they're advertising or whatever. And you need to feel comfortable with your practitioner to be able to tell them what you probably might even tell your partner. So many clients have said, not even my partner knows this about mm. me, telling you. So it's that element of trust and confidentiality that you need to have a special sacred place for them to talk. Because if they can tell you what you need to know, then you can truly help them. Mm. Uh, and this particularly goes for men, adult men. So stuck at talking, you know, they come in and say, I'm here because she sent me, my <laughs> partner, my wife, my girlfriend. And she's the problem, really. <laughs> Nothing to do with me. And uh, how long before I can go? <laughs> and so we need to have tricks and tools to deal with mm. clients or clients who can't speak English or mm. clients who are young or elderly, so on. So case taking is so important. So, so, but I think some of the rationale for these multiplicity of methodologies, Eugenie, has got to do with fear. And unfortunately, many homeopaths are fearful of doing too much. It's the, um, the aggravation. Mm. And uh, some teachers, 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 teacher way back, I don't know when, did some harm to someone and have perpetuated this fear that has um, emasculated many a homeopath. Mm. And we are so fearful of overwhelming our clients. We do the opposite. We make the mistake of having unfavorite remedies and unfavorite potencies and unfavorite methodologies that diminishes us. I mean, mm -hmm. look, I don't want to advocate killing clients, but <laughs> we would get a little more respect if we had a few more nasty issues. I don't want those because it's not desirable. So a lot of these methodology variations and techniques and Isiaga levels and French homeopathy is all about trying to avoid an aggravation. And if you can do that with a well-selected similinum, given an optimum potency, and that's just one bottle, that's good enough. But if you can't do that, or that's too challenging or too difficult, and there's so many layers and it's so complicated, you might end up with a lesional remedy and a fundamental remedy and a miasmatic remedy and a constitutional remedy, all in the same package, trying to diffuse a bomb. Mm -hmm. So I think it's got to do with how you're trained, what your attitude is, mm -hmm. how good and strong your philosophy is, how well you understand your client. And, and all of that often comes down into your business plan. Are you dictated in your time by dollars? You know, if you've got a seven and a half minute consultation because you need that throughput of clients, as GPs do, it's going to dictate how they do their work. You want one simple problem, one simple prescription, Next, 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 so on through. But whereas, as a homeopath, we typically get clients lots of time. An hour and a half is not an unusual first consultation for an adult client. Mm. And walking away with one remedy is not an unusual prescription of for me a Fibonacci homocord or the Semimacord. And for me, that is frequently enough. Now, clients unfold, secrets come out, layers peel off. Um, changes are necessary. I've told you some of those ideas. I've written about them as well. So you can see how things unfold and how the caterpillar turns into the butterfly. Mm -hmm. We need to follow along. So, you know, there's horses for courses. There are times when I need to draw on the periodic table to inspire me to an element or using 
similar ideas in botany with family and myisms and so forth. So, but to, to a, a new student, that ends up just being far too very confusing. Yeah, definitely. Because yes. you know, the school of training says, well, we have to expose them to all those ideas, but in doing so, they lose the plot. So they need mm-hmm. something very simple. So I know some training courses in the UK, they say, well, we're only going to teach you homeopathy up to about the 1960s. <laughs> That's your undergraduate program. If you want to know yeah. any new homeopathy since the 1960s, you're going to have to do a postgraduate program. That's, <laughs> That's actually a good idea. <laughs> because I feel if I, if I was taught everything that I know now at college, I would have given up because I would have been so overwhelmed. <laughs> because, <laughs> That's right. Because that, yeah. that, then the, the, the new graduate says, oh my God, there's so much I don't know. I heard all of this. Whereas if you had one simple, reliable technique, heck, you know, there's been a resurgence in the Bonninghausen method. Mm-hmm. The Baron, and that might be a good place to start. They teach that in German universities at their medical schools to their students. Mm-hmm. Some very simple, and they can do if they do that well. That's a great start. They can still get great results, absolutely. So I reckon, Peter, we should end up on a little bit of fun, and uh, I'm going to ask you your top three homeopathic remedies that you personally can't live without, and why. Well, uh. You're asking me to fall into the trap of having favorite and non-favorite. <laughs> I'm acknowledging the philosophical trap you're, you're endorsing. Um, so here goes. Um, I've only got one, and it's the one that I think is the closest to the homeopathic philosophy stone for healing. Okay? So arguably, you don't need anything else. Mm-hmm. It's the guy's name in, um, in Melbourne who runs a homeopathic course. Um, yes, facial diagnosis. Uh, he, he has colors associated to the major myosins. He has yellow, thesaura, mm-hmm. red, psychosis, and another uh, one you're meaning. I can't, I can't think. Oh, yes, yes. Right? And then the mixing of those three primary colors, you get the other colors. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you mix the three primary colors, you get brown. Mm hmm. Okay, so brown has red, yellow, and blue in it. So that's why I'm starting a simple, I won't give you the whole argument, but <laughs> simple argument for why a medicine nicknamed brown is the most repulsive thing you could think of as what the alchemists call your prima materia. So alchemists who heard this thought, oh, it's going to be feces, oh, it's going to be urine. That's the most repulsive thing I can think of, shit and poo, and wheat. Well, there's something I can think of these days that would be potentially more repulsive than urine and feces, and that's cancer. That's brown. Mm. So carcinosin, carcinosinum. Yeah. Um, most people know of it as the breast epithelioma from St. Bart's Hospital in the UK, mm. but there is Tina Smith's version, which is a T58 rather mm. than a T1. So 58 tumors, hey? 58 different tumors. Uh Fibonacci series and statistical scale of T58 carcinosin brown. Okay, I will be calling Mike at Similum and ordering that. You have me sold. I do love carcinosin. It's the one remedy that I have prescribed probably hundreds of times over the past decade, and I've never had an aggravation from it. I love that remedy so much. Well, this is how to avoid an aggravation. This is how to avoid all those other... Yeah. Having leisure in a Fibonacci accord. Those birds and cons- you know, Love so it. away from that French is the stuff mm-hmm. is, is the bomb. Mm-hmm. 
And, Excellent. <laughs> and and in case, okay, one more thing, one more tip as to why this might be so, so, so special is if you know about physiology and the cell cycle, you've heard of telomeres and telomere shortening as to how you get to the Hayflick limit and why cells have planned senescence called apoptosis after 50 to 70 cycles of reproduction. And that's what death by old age is. You have enough critical cells dying in a critical organ that the organ fails and you fail and at 115 you die. That's when you're supposed to die. Okay, so that happens because telomeres shorten. Now, telomeres in a cancer cell do not shorten. They have upregulated telomerase, the enzyme that keeps the telomeres from shortening. So they have physical immortality. In case you already know, cancer cells have physical immortality. So one of the characteristics alluded to about the philosopher's stone is it will give you physical immortality. Well, I'm not going to suggest you get physical immortality. Otherwise, we'd be having 100-year-old people hanging out, and we're already overpopulated with (laughs) people. But I think what the appropriate philosophical approach is, we will get you to 115. And then you could have a critical organ failure, and then you could expire by old age. And if you die before 115, you've shortchanged yourself through whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's something about cancer, and it's is physical immortality that will engender physical immortality mm-hmm. in you or our clients, not not literally, but figuratively to the point of getting to the Hayflick limit at 115. Well, my mind is blown, Peter. We had such a, we had like a solid half an hour chat before I started recording because you were just blowing my mind. And I was like, okay, we're going to have to start recording because you have got so much good stuff that you are just sharing so, you know, graciously with all of us. I appreciate it so much. I just want to thank you for your time. And I feel like my mind has been blown after this podcast. Probably. I can't wait for us to chat again. <laughs> That's why I'm so passionate about education, my education, my professional development, and passing that on as an educator, as a facilitator to the students I've ever been involved with. And why you should vote Pedro and get me back <laughs> on, on as uh, an ATMS director and potential uh, executive president, etc. Excellent. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye, Eugene. Bye.